Greetings. This is Bible Time with Jane, and I am Jane, your host. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, and today we will look at Acts chapter 26, verse 24, through Acts chapter 27, verse 12. In our last session, we left Paul in the midst of giving his defense before King Agrippa, his wife Bernice, Festus, and other dignitaries and people of prominence. In the eyes of the world, Paul was on trial. But from Paul's perspective, God had given him a wonderful opportunity to share with those before him about Jesus, who is the Savior of the world and the promised Jewish Messiah. So while Paul was technically on trial, it was actually the others who were on trial as Paul testified to the truth as it is recorded in the scriptures and taught by our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you read Paul's defense closely, you will soon discover that rather than defending himself, he actually was giving his personal testimony as to how Jesus completely transformed his life. In our last session, Paul had just reached the point in his testimony regarding the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Listen to what Paul said in verses 22 and 23 of uh, Acts chapter 6. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to great and small, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. This was such a bold statement that Festus could no longer keep silent, and therefore he abruptly interrupted Paul. This was very unusual, as King Agrippa had given Paul the opportunity to make his defense without interruption. But the truth of the testimony had pierced the hearts of his listeners, and Festus could no longer keep silent. Let us turn in our Bibles now to Acts chapter 26 and read about what happened next. I will begin reading with verse 24. Now, as Paul thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. And when he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice, and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. 
To Festus, this report, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, was too much to believe. And yet, this is the very thing that Paul had shared in his previous trials. This was not something new, but it was this very thing that had kept Paul in prison, even though Festus had already acknowledged that this was not grounds for Paul's arrest, his chains, and certainly it was not enough to convict Paul to death. But on that day, Festus reacted with insults, accusing Paul of being insane for believing that anyone could rise from the dead. So Paul responded, calmly and with respect. I like the observations that Warren Wearsby makes. He writes, Paul had been addressing King Agrippa, but the emotional interruption of the governor forced him to reply. He reminded Festus that the facts about the ministry of Jesus Christ, including his death and resurrection, were public knowledge and not done in a corner. The Jewish Sanhedrin was involved and so was the Roman governor, Pilate. Jesus of Nazareth had been a famous public figure for at least three years and huge crowds had followed him. How then could the governor plead ignorance? Now, following his response to Festus, Paul turned his attention to King Agrippa and challenged him with the question, Do you believe the prophets? What Paul was doing was reminding Agrippa of his responsibility. And he was also reminding him that it was common knowledge that King Agrippa was a student of the Old Testament scriptures and that since he was a ruler in that region, he would have been fully aware of the spread of Christianity based on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Indeed, Christianity had been a very public movement from the moment of the inception of the church on that first Pentecost when 3,000 people had been converted to the temple courts at Jerusalem in one day. Additionally, there were the many and various miracles that had been performed, along with the testimony of believers in life and in their death. The spread of Christianity and all the reports that came out of the churches was already deeply impacting the Roman Empire, and it could not be ignored nor could it be silenced. The Life Application Bible Commentary makes the following excellent observation. Paul was appealing to the facts. People were still alive who had heard Jesus and seen his miracles. The empty tomb could still be seen. And the Christian message was turning the world upside down. The history of Jesus' life and the early church are facts that are still open for us to examine. We still have eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life recorded in the Bible as well as historical and archaeological records of the early church to study. Examine the events and facts as verified by many witnesses. Strengthen your faith with the truth of these accounts. Well. To Paul's challenging question, Agrippa's response was, in essence, Do you think you can persuade me to become a Christian so quickly? Agrippa was getting very uncomfortable with the truth 
Clearly, the Holy Spirit was pricking the hearts of those listening. Agrippa's response was in the form of a rebuke and with insult. But Paul, taking it in stride, calmly responded with what was truly in his heart, his desire that they would all believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Let me read his words again. Verse 29. Whether quickly or not, I pray to God that both you and everyone here in this audience might become the same as I am, except for these chains. This is the heart of a servant of the Lord. Because he expressed God's heart's desire with that simple sentence. You remember, I'm sure, what the scriptures say. For example, in Second in Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Or what about in John 3, verses 16 through 21? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So King Agrippa, Bernice, Festus, and all the others had a choice before them. To believe the truth that Jesus rose from the dead and is the promised one as written about in the prophets, or they could choose to reject the message. The choice they made that day would determine their eternal future. And sadly, King Agrippa stood up and everyone else with him and they walked out of the room. They had rejected the message. But King Agrippa did not forget the original purpose for that trial, to determine whether or not Paul was guilty of a capital offense. What was King Agrippa's ruling? He said, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. You will notice how many times Luke has recorded in his, this historical account that the fact that Paul was not guilty of any crime deserving death. This declaration from King Agrippa was very important in that it provided the Christian church a little bit of relief from persecution from the government for a brief period of time because it was an acknowledgement that Christianity was a viable religion. However, we know from historical records that it wouldn't be long before severe persecution would come against the church and that it would con continue up until the days of Constantine 
who would eventually establish Christianity as the state church. Well, Paul had made his appeal to Caesar. So now that his numerous trials had been completed, Paul began his journey to Rome. Let's turn to our Bibles to read about his eventful journey. Acts chapter 27, beginning with verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some of other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship, we put to sea, meaning to sail through the coasts of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. Now I want to pause here in the narrative to, uh, just briefly to draw our, our attention to three specific people. The first one is a Roman centurion by the name of Julius. He was the one who was in charge of Paul and all the other prisoners that were on the ship headed for Rome. Now, we don't know anything about the other prisoners, but it can be assumed that they were ones who had been tried and convicted, being condemned to death. So they were on their way to Rome to be killed in the Colosseum, giving the crowds a little bit of morbid entertainment. And we will find that Julius treated Paul with great respect. Indeed, he seems to show special favor to Paul throughout the journey. He allowed Paul's friends or members of the church to meet with him and provide for his needs, to fellowship with him in different ports throughout their journey. Julius is one of the few Gentiles mentioned by name in this book, and therefore he stands out as an honorable man. And it makes me wonder if the time that he spent with Paul, hearing him sharing with others about Jesus, and if it had actually had a transforming impact on his own life. The next two people mentioned are Luke and Aristarchus. I say Luke because you will notice that in writing this historical record, he uses the word we, meaning that he was with Paul during this time and will remain with him throughout his journey. He served Paul as his personal physician, which I'm sure was very helpful and encouraging to Paul, and he remained with Paul throughout this journey and during the years of his confinement in Rome. Aristarchus was also joined Paul as his personal assistant. Aristarchus met Paul in Thessalonica and was one of the church leaders there. This is the same man who was dragged into the theater as recorded in Acts 19 and 20. Uh, let's uh, read that again, just, just to refresh our memories. Uh, 19 verse 29. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go to the people, the disciples would not allow him. Chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia 
And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Segundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. In Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, which he wrote while in prison in Rome, Paul had this to say about Aristarchus in chapter 4 of Colossians. He says, he calls Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Also in Paul's letter to Philemon, concerning Onesimus, his fellow prisoner and spiritual son, Paul closed his letter with the following greeting. Ep Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. You will notice in one, he's, Aristarchus is referred to as my fellow prisoner, and in the other letter, my fellow laborers. So whether or not Aristarchus was actually a prisoner or was with Paul simply serving him while in prison, we don't know for sure. However, whether they were voluntary prisoners so as to serve Paul or they had joined him throughout his time of incarceration, they were a great source of help and encouragement to Paul when he needed it most. Because, you know, whereas Paul had enjoyed for many years the freedom to come and go, visiting the many churches that had been established, having a vibrant ministry among the believers, now he was restricted totally under the control of Rome. But God had provided him this opportunity to be his witness in a city filled with every idol known to man, and an important city that ruled the known world. God was placing his man, his ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right in the heart of the seat of power and influence. And God had given him favor, allowing him to reside in his own rented house, which provided people the freedom to come and go. Therefore, Paul was free to teach and preach the scriptures and the message of Jesus Christ. But first, Paul had to get there. So let us continue reading about Paul's journey, beginning with verse 4. When we had put out to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete, off Salome. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near the city of Lacia. Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, 
opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. The details that Paul or Luke provides us of this trip is proof that he was on the ship with Paul. The original ship was a smaller ship that was taking the coastal route as this journey began at the beginning of the winter season when it was not advisable to travel by ship. Therefore, there was better shelter close to shore. However, they were not making very good time. And because the weather would only increasingly get worse, Julius found a larger ship from Alexandria that was sailing to Italy. This would have been a grain ship from Egypt, and we know that it carried 276 passengers. Rome depended on Egypt for much of its grain supply, and the Roman government gave special consideration to those who ran these ships. This ship was designed to go out into the open sea, therefore making the trip shorter, potentially. However, because it was now well into the stormy season, their journey was not going well. The time came for Paul to address the situation. Now, you might think it is strange that Paul would advise Julius and the captain of the ship, but we do need to remember that Paul had quite a bit of experience on the open seas. We know that Paul had already experienced three ship shipwrecks from his own personal testimony in 2 Corinthians 11.25, when he recounts just a little bit of the things that he had suffered for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let me quickly read that to you. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 26. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. In fact, scholars have calculated that Paul traveled some 3,500 miles by ship during the years of his ministry. Therefore, Paul did have a little bit of knowledge in that area. And what he was observing was that with a stormy season on them, there would be significant cloud cover. This would mean that they would have no way to navigate their way through the seas as they navigated only by the stars at that time. And added to that is the danger to man and cargo on the stormy open seas. Therefore, it would not be advisable to press on to Rome. Paul wanted to encourage them to remain in fair havens. However, the captain of the ship and Julius were in agreement that fair havens was unsuitable to remain at for the long winter months, and therefore they would press on with their journey. Horn Wearsby helps us to understand what they were up against. He writes, To begin with, fair havens was not a comfortable place to settle down because it was too open to the winter storms. Phoenix had a more sheltered harbor. Julius also listened to the expert advice of the pilot and captain, who was the master and owner of the ship. And they advised that the ship head for Phoenix as fast as possible. Surely they could cover 40 miles safely and 
Already they had lost too much time. When Julius added up the votes, it was three to one that the ship set sail. After all, the majority cannot be wrong, <laughs> especially when it includes the experts. Well, there is a verse in Proverbs, and perhaps you know it. But I think it applies here. It comes from Proverbs chapter 3, and it says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Paul the prisoner trusted in the Lord. And we will find as we continue our journey with Paul in our next session that the counsel Paul received from the Lord would make all the difference. These men trusted in their own understanding of the situation. And they will pay a very heavy price for ignoring the wise counsel of the man of God. Someone has observed, sometimes we get ourselves into storms for the same reasons, impatience, accepting expert advice that is contrary to God's will, following the majority, trusting ideal conditions. However, it is wise to remember the counsel of Isaiah 28.16, which says, whoever believes will not act hastily. It pays to listen to God's word. Well, my friend, let me conclude our session today with this word of counsel and encouragement from Psalm 37, beginning with verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. And Heavenly Father, as we meditate on these verses, these wonderful promises of your sovereign authority in our lives, when we take a look at the Apostle Paul and we see the wondrous ways that you directed him to accomplish the work that you had prepared for him to do, we just sit, sit back, Lord, and we say thank you. Thank you that you have revealed to us that it really doesn't matter what the schemes of man are because you are sovereign in our, our lives and you will accomplish the work that you've called us to do. 
You will preserve us. You will guide us. You will counsel us with your word and by your spirit. You will empower us, O Lord. And what the world might see as obstacles, you will present to us as opportunities. And so we give you thanks. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear your, your vision, your, your calling upon our lives. Strengthen our faith. Increase our boldness. May we trust in you with all of our heart, giving you thanks. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you're finding these messages helpful and encouraging, or if you have a question that you would like to ask, please feel free to email me at BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. That's all lowercase, BibleTimeWithJane at gmail.com. So until next time, be encouraged. Because God is with you. You are not alone. And as David said in Psalm 37, I have not seen the righteous forsaken. And let me assure you that you never will. God is faithful, and he will carry you through. God bless you, my friend.